Snap Studios. Okay, so longtime snappers know that we consider the Ear Hustle podcast to be part of our extended family. We first met the Ear Hustle crew, a podcast based in San Quentin State Penitentiary, before there was an Ear Hustle. And since then, they've blown up to heights spectacular. In fact, earlier this year, Ear Hustle was named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in audio reporting. The Pulitzer Prize, the first time the audio category was recognized, they were noted, and I quote, for bringing audiences a consistently surprising and beautifully crafted series on life behind bars. That's exactly what they do. Their team, led by Erlon Woods, Nigel Poor, and Rasan New York Thomas, provides a window into an often hidden experience. And this week, in celebration of a new season of Ear Hustle, we want to let you know how to deserve this hype is. Because we tackle one of the most fraught subjects there is. Relationships. The romance. The magic. The desire. And the challenge of intimacy with someone behind bars. And yes, due to the nature of the subject matter, sensitive listeners should know that this episode does mention sex. Not to worry, nothing graphic. And right before the pandemic put an end to meeting face-to-face, your hustles Erlon Woods and Nigel Poor, they went to Southern California to speak with a group called Ten Toes In. It's a support group for women whose partners are locked up. And a dozen or so they meet and discuss what it's like to have a relationship with someone in prison and what happens when that loved one comes out. Now, this story does contain explicit language. Sensitive listeners are advised. Yeah. Women want to feel love. We're with you at the lowest point in your life, and then everybody comes out the woodworks when you come home. I want to take you out. I want to buy you clothes. I want to do this. I want to do that. But I've been J-paying money to you. (laughs) I had Global Tail Link on for you. I sent you packages. I sent you homeboy packages. I came and saw you every weekend, every other weekend. Where was your family and friends at during that time? But now you want to give them all your time, and we're back here like, The women of Tinto's Inn sit down around tables in the same damn room where way back when I appeared before Judge Moore. I can't get over that. It is the same building that you used to get hauled into. (laughs) Nige, the judge's bench and witness stand are still there. I am just shaking my head. It is crazy. Darlene Burke, the co-founder of Ten Toes In, asks everybody to check in. You know, share what's been going on since the last time they met. One of the women said her husband is coming home in June after serving 19 years. Another is still adjusting to life with her husband, who returned about a year ago. And another woman, Annette, is close to retiring from her job with the county of Los Angeles. She has some news to share. My name is Annette. Mm-hmm. And my boyfriend, he's... Boyfriend now. Darling, tell me to wait. We've been together five months now. So we officially said we were a couple December the 20th. 
The guy Annette is now officially calling her boyfriend has been locked up for 36 years since he was 19. They met through Annette's daughter. This is my daughter, everybody, Raven. <laughs> Welcome, Raven. Thank you. She calls him Daddy Uncle. <laughs> the reason she calls him Daddy Uncle because her boyfriend. That's his uncle. That's oh, his uncle. Is it all in the family? It's, it's all, all in the family. family. Okay. So she calls him Daddy Uncle. Uncle Daddy. Uncle Daddy? Yeah. Oh, I had it backwards. <laughs> <laughs> so Uncle Daddy. So what do you think about your mom's, rela- her new relationship now? Um, I support it. Um, I just want to see her happy because I know everything she's been through, a past relationship, and I just want to see her, like, you know, smile with that beautiful smile she yes. had on her face. <laughs> and I'm But not everyone in their family is cool with this new relationship. Annette filled us in the next day when we visited her at her home. My other daughter, she's in the Air Force. She's judgmental. You shouldn't be like that. She see he's in prison, so she just thinks that he's a bad person. Okay, he was in there from the time he was, you know, 19. People can change. People do change. They don't stay the same forever. Her dude was recently found suitable for parole, and he could be out by summer. Her sisters at Ten Toes In have some strong opinions about what the couple should do. So currently the plan is for him to move in with Annette. But at another meeting, the group said maybe she should rethink that, that maybe he should first go to transitional housing, and then they could get to know each other. And actually, Erlon, that kind of seems like a reasonable plan. Honestly, this is just my opinion, Nige, but I think anybody who's released after a significant number of years need to have some space to adjust. Totally, and they need time to figure out who they are, right? They need a lot of time to figure that out, straight up. And this is just my opinion. The woman needs time to get used to this change as well. I mean, all of a sudden, there's a new person in your house and a new person in your life 24-7. A new person in your refrigerator, in your space, in your bathroom... So, Annette and her guy still have some time to figure it out. In the meantime, he's in prison about seven hours away, too far for her to keep visiting, so they stay in touch with phone calls and with letters. But I keep them all in order. I have a space in my room, in my drawer for them. She had all his letters in a little box, each numbered and shit. He sent me this one on the 4th. I don't know, he always started with profound greetings, Annette. The letter talks about how tough his past was and how he's looking forward to their future together. It says, Anna, this is our time. Nobody else but us. So let's enjoy it to the fullest together as one. We're going to be having a lot of love and sex. (laughs) That's what it says. Okay, E, now that brings up a question I bet a lot of people are asking themselves. What about the sex part when guys are still locked up? The physical intimacy, I mean, that is so important in a romantic relationship, and it's so hard to have with your partner when they're locked up. Well, there are some unofficial ways that we've described before on Ear Hustle. Mm -hmm. There are visiting rooms where everybody looks the other way, and then, I don't want to say where, but there might be a boom-boom room where couples can actually get a little... A long time. That's right. And don't forget the original way, Nodge. Wait, what's that? Phone sex. (laughs) Okay, and then, of course, there's the official way. 
family visits where you get to spend 48 hours alone with your loved one in something they call a cottage. But really, imagine more a 500-square-foot trailer. But not everyone can give family visits, even if they're married. So they end up in a relationship that's romantic but physically apart. Like this one woman I met at Ten Toes Inn, Raylene. I remember being a kid and having this feeling in my heart and not knowing what it was, but yet knowing, like, I think this is what love feels like with him. Raylene fell for her guy Raul when they were teenagers. It didn't last long, though. Raylene moved out of the neighborhood, and Raul dropped out of school. The last time I seen him was the night of my graduation from high school, was back in 1993. And I remember we went to a party, and um, I seen him walk in, and I was so excited to see him. And I walked up to him and said hello. But I was pregnant at the time with my daughter. And when we were younger, right before my um, 15th birthday, you know, he used to try to, you know, see where he could go with me. And I used to always tell him, no, we can't do that. We got to be married if you want to do that. And then there I was at that party standing in front of him pregnant. And I felt like I could kick myself thinking, why didn't I just do that with him? (laughs) Raylene got married to her kid's father and then divorced 20 years later. By this time, Raul was in prison. Eventually, they got in touch again, started exchanging letters, things got romantic, then they got married. But they were denied family visits because Raul had an accusation of domestic violence on his record. So, no sex. And I asked Raylene how that's affected their relationship. I feel like this type of relationship, when you're not allowed to be physically intimate with each other, allows you to get to know each other a little deeper without that interfering. It builds a stronger, deeper connection. I've experienced the most intimacy that I ever have with a man, with my husband, without being physically intimate. And it's been one of the most beautiful experiences to have. Raylene's hoping Raul get out this fall so they'll be able to, you know. E, these are sweet. Annette's getting new love, Mm -hmm. Raylene reconnecting with her first love. But I have heard plenty of horror stories about women dating guys in prison. I can't confirm nor deny what you're saying, but what have you heard, (laughs) Nye? Let's just say there are a lot of ways for these relationships to go bad. Definitely. One of the women I met at Ten Toes Inn was going through it. I think I've been apart almost two years now. And last year was just the worst. In just a moment, we return to the Snap Judgment Ear Hustle Spotlight. Hold that space. Right after this break, Stay tuned. Step Judgment is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. 
Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Ear Hustle Spotlight Special. And before the break, we just met Teresa, who was speaking to Ear Hustle's Erlon Woods. One of the women I met at Ten Toes In was going through it. I think I've been apart almost two years now, and last year was just the worst. Four years ago, Teresa met an incarcerated man online through a friend. But at first, Teresa didn't realize that he was locked up. When she found out, she thought about heading for the hills, as she told us the next day. But um, he was very attractive. And um, I've known people who were in prison, and I felt like he deserved a, a chance. And I gave it. Teresa didn't start visiting him immediately. It was a long drive to the prison, and there was something else. From my picture, it doesn't look like I'm a big girl, you know, but that was my thing was, you know, I put off going to visit for a long time because of my size. And finally, I just had to tell him, like, I'm a big girl. And he was okay with it. And so I finally went up to visit. Teresa said he was a good man and very sensitive, but she said he had a drug problem. Still... She hung in there. Right. She told me she thought her love might fix him. Also, she'd promised. When I made a commitment and took that vow to love you for better or for worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, drug addiction is a sickness. I don't know if it's just us women that have this, um, where we think we can fix people. But he had been so hurt in his childhood and just, you know, um, I guess I thought I could fix him. You know, uh, Teresa is a caregiver professionally. That is true. Uh, She's a home health aide, so it's not really surprising that she tried to fix the guy. And they stayed together, and they got married. Teresa knew that the money she sent him went for drugs. She knew that. Instead of fixing him, she might be supporting his habit. A year ago, after they'd been married for a while, Teresa fell down and broke her arm and shoulder. She couldn't work for a bit, so she didn't have any extra money to send him. Things got bad between them. He sent her divorce papers, and when we met her at the Ten Toes Inn meeting, she just learned that he had something going on with a teacher who worked in the prison. So how are you feeling now? Because you still wanted to make it work, even after I all still, of this. You know, and the crazy thing is, even after finding out if he was to call me today and tell me he's sorry because of who I am and what I believe in and commitment, and the vow that I made before the Lord, I would forgive him. So, like, right now, seriously, though, I say that, but 
I'm just like all over the place right now. Ugh, Erlon, I don't know what's in this guy's heart. I don't know him. But I do know that there's lots of guys inside and out who take advantage of the generosity of women like Teresa. I mean, I've definitely seen that. But there's nothing like boredom, loneliness, and a drug addiction to make a guy do some questionable things. Steven is my first love. He was someone that I always could confide in. Crazy enough, like, we've always been open and honest with each other, even as teenagers, which that's not really, that doesn't happen a lot. That's Satina Green. She's in her 40s with dark, straight black hair. She's really pretty, super, kind of vivacious and present. Steven's got short hair, a beard, wired frame glasses, and has a sexy belly like mine. Sidebar, I'm waiting for the day that women have sexy bellies. <laughs> women do have sexy bellies. Oh, thank you, E. She and Steve started dating in junior high. She says they did a lot of making up and breaking up. They grew apart after high school. Steven, he ended up going to prison for murder robbery. He was the one sentenced to LWAP, life without the possibility of parole. When the judge said life without the possibility, what was your mindset? Honestly, um, I didn't understand. I'd have no point of reference to understand what life without meant. But I didn't understand it until years later. Like, So for me, I was on the yard at like a 22, I think, almost turned about to turn 23. And uh, it seemed like the world had slowed down and like my focus had got onto one individual. He was like in his 60s. He already had the hunchback. He was already... He, you know, they had signs of age on him. And then I realized, like, I'm going to be here until I'm that age or more. For me, it was a sinking feeling of, like, how, you know, what did I do to myself? Then the questions came, well, what did I do to other people? Because that's why they put me here. During the years Stephen spent inside, Satina moved on, got married, and had two crumb snatchers. <laughs> crumb snatchers? I've never heard that before. That's old school, Nige. That's kids. <laughs> okay, two crumb snatchers. Then, 10 years into his sentence, Stephen got a letter from Satina. She'd recently split up with her husband, and she wanted to come visit him. So what was it like when you got that letter? Well, it was, it was awesome because, uh, one, I have, I've always had love for, you know, I've always loved her, I've always had love for her. Um, and, and for her to say, like, hey, I'm coming back, it, it felt really good, but the life without will scare people off because that means I'm not coming home. And that was always my reservation with her, like, hey, it's cool that you love me, but you know I'm not coming home, right? You're going to burn yourself out in five years. Like, it's cool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rock with it while it's good. But I know 100% sure that she'd be gone in five years. But he still wanted to see her. Stephen got ready for their first visit. And you know the cold part about a first visit, Nige? What's that? You want to look like a CDCR model of what a prisoner looks like. 
Wait, what do you mean? Your clothes are ironed and creased. They're brand new. Your drawers are new. Uh, it's like the cover of a GQ magazine. Only it's SQ. <laughs> so if you're at San Quentin, you're an SQ model? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, definitely on a first visit. You're going to go out there and look like the system take care of you. And then she didn't show up. My kids were in a car accident, so I wasn't able to get a hold of him. And then I was like, Dad, what happened? So he probably felt like I stood him up. A few weeks later, though. I visited, and we picked up where we left off as young teenagers. And man, Satina was committed. Stephen was in a level four prison about four hours from where Satina lived. Every other Friday, she and the kids piled into the car. When they were little, it wasn't that bad for them. The older they got, they were like, I hate this drive. Do we really have to go? (laughs) She would drive up there and park her car in a dirt road. At some California prisons, you had to get there hella early to hold your spot in line on the road outside the prison. I heard that people had to show up at like 2 or 3 in the morning just to start waiting in this damn long line. And sometimes when they got there, they would find out simply that visits had been canceled. And I would be like, I hate this place. I'm tired of how they treat me. I'm tired of how they treat us in the visiting room. I'm, I'm never coming back. But she did come back again and again and again. And despite the circumstances, she and Stephen did all they could to build a normal childhood for Satina's kids. The girls would bring their homework Um, So he would work on homework with them. When they were a little bit older and they were doing jujitsu, he would get on the mats in the play area with them and do some jujitsu moves with the girls. So, like, we tried to make it as normal as possible, considering it was in a prison. I just kept waiting for that day. We're like, hey, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of the visits. I'm tired of the... You know, the stuff that goes with all that, like having to get up, having to kill the weekends off, having to like just put your whole life on hold just to come see me. And I never wanted to put their life on hold. Uh, But I know it's affected them too. That reality made Stephen really conflicted about the relationship. This all got very real for Stephen when Satina told him she wanted to get married. And you you had some, some reservations. Tell us about that. They're not even reservations. They were, no, I don't want to do this. I guess it's hard to explain unless you've been to prison. Like, you know what it's like. You have to deal with the guards and whatever whatever they're going through. You got to deal with the, the crazy rules that don't make sense to anybody. I can't put anything on the table. I can't pay any bills. I'm, I'm emotional support through a telephone for a 15-minute call and a letter. And what kind of husband is that? To love someone, really love them, and then say, hey, I want you to come experience this trauma with me. Come on, man, that don't make sense. E, explain that trauma of prison that he's talking about. Well, you know, the violence, the anxiety, the depression, the loneliness of all of it. It, uh, it's fucking hard, man. I mean, who wants to pull someone that you care about into that bullshit? Mm-hmm. But, and this may not surprise you, Satina stuck in there. 
After a couple years, Stephen put aside his reservations, and they actually did get married. Not only that, they also managed to have two new crumb snatchers without having the privilege of family visits because lifers at that time weren't allowed to have family visits. Uh, bum bum room? Something like that. And even though they were making it work in prison, Satina wanted to get him out of prison. She wanted him to apply for a commutation. Once again, he had reservations. Having life without, that's really what it is. You're going to die in prison. It's death by incarceration. And uh, I fully accepted that's where I'm going to die at. And then to open that door, to really open the door for hope, I don't don't know how to say it, but I, I, I felt that if I opened the door and nothing happened, that it would really just, like, that depression that you can't come back from, uh, it's really, it's real. And uh, I don't even like talking about it because I, I, could, I felt it. And uh, it's not cool, man. Like, people really don't even know what, like, no hope really means until you have no hope. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe, like, maybe a drowning victim might understand what no hope looks like. But... Again, Satina did not give up. When we return, what happens when you know you have no hope, but the person you love refuses to accept it? When Snap Judgment, the ear hustle spotlight continues. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Ear Hustle Spotlight. My name is Glenn Washington, and right before the break, Stephen, sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, is dealing with the reality of never living his life beyond prison walls, despite the desperate efforts of Satina, the woman he loves. And even though they were making it work in prison, Satina wanted to get him out of prison. Having life without, that's really what it is. You're going to die in prison. It's death by incarceration. And uh, I fully accepted that's where I'm going to die at. Like, people really don't even know what, like, no hope really means until you have no hope. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe, like, maybe a drowning victim might understand what no hope looks like. But, again, Satina did not give up. And eventually, he did file for that commutation. He did it for her, though. Satina started spending as much time as she could fighting for his release. She started an LWAP group, got to know other people whose partners had life without. She'd go to Sacramento, advocate for Stephen's release, and in August of 2018, my partner, the Honorable California Governor Jerry Brown, announced a bunch of commutations. And commutations came out, and he was not on it. And I was devastated. I was like, shit. He wasn't commuted. Then, a few months later, her phone rang. Ironwood State Prison popped up, and I was like, "Uh, why is the prison calling me? Um, And so Stephen's on the phone, and I'm like, what's going on? He's like, I just got off the phone with a nice lady from the governor's office who told me uh, my sentence has been commuted. In the fall of 2019, 
After 28 years in prison, Stephen Green walked out the door of his cell for the last time. So I shut it, and I, I was like, I hadn't, I've, I've been a porter before, so I would clean cells out and shut them. But this was the cell that I lived in. This was, the, you know, this is where they, this is where I was caged at. That cell was mine, and it's empty, and then I got to tear the tag off the door, and uh, the sound is very different because I knew I wasn't coming back no more. It was shock. I was crying for a few days, just like, oh, my God, I can't believe he's really coming. And then I kind of went through survivor's guilt because all of my fellow wives, you know, who their husbands weren't commuted. It was weird, like, hey, they're going to really let me go. Like, it's just happening. Yeah. Like, you know, look look what just crawled out the belly of the beast. And uh, we got in, the, got in the truck and went there. And I remember looking in the back like, like, I'm leaving people that I love, too. I'm going to the people that I love, but I'm leaving people that I love. And uh, it, was, it was weird. It's still weird. At Satina's house, Stephen saw something that really threw him. When I came home, like there's like, what do I call it, a shrine, a memorial? I don't even know what it was. Like I, I came home, the first this is my first time ever seeing it. And I walked into the bedroom and there's like a thousand pictures of us and me and our family all on her nightstand. And the first thing, I, I, want, to, I want to like start crying. Like this is like a shrine, like a memorial to our marriage or who, who I was inside. But this is what she was hanging on to. And for me, I mean, it's moving, it's touching. And I'm just like, what logical thinking person would do that to themselves? Stephen had been out for about three months when I interviewed him and Satina. They were both still getting used to their new reality. I've had to control my household and my life for the last 20 years. The power dynamic, does it change a little bit because he's home now? You've been doing everything for the longest? Definitely. I've taken care of him the last 19 years. I'm used to helping him and doing everything for him. And he comes home and I still want to be that, let me do it for you. Well, how is he going to learn anything if I'm doing everything for him? I, I feel that, like, with her, with the power and control thing that's going on, like, I've been controlled my whole damn life. Like, back up. He was more affectionate, it seemed, inside, always holding my hand, always rubbing my leg, always touchy-feely, kind of. And now that he's out, I'm like, why don't you want to hold my hand in public? I'm getting out, and I'm looking at, like, Dang, there's a gang of colors out here. Look at all the greens and blues and, and, and purple, like all the different shades. That's what's going through my head. And she's like, why aren't you, why aren't you holding my hand? I'm like, or I'm looking at, uh, at all the different cars and how they're shaped and the sounds. And I'm tripping on all that stuff. And she's thinking about hold my hand or hold me or way different. I'm on a different page. And then it's like, hey, I'm not going nowhere. I can hold your hand tomorrow. 
For me personally, knowing he had a life without the possibility of parole sentence, I did kind of have a wall up. I never wanted to be fully vulnerable because I don't want to get hurt. And I think him coming home, I tore down that wall. I was like, okay, he's home. I don't have to worry about anything. I'm vulnerable. And I'm like, oh shit, I don't like how this feels. Like, I, I'm scared. I definitely believe that if I was single, uh, I think my adjustment would be easier just because I only have to worry about me. Uh, but like adjusting to being a husband, which never have been, and like you have an idea of what you think a husband is, but your wife is going to let you know that you're failing in areas that you're failing in every time. And it's not always pleasant. But there's a lot of things that I'm learning that I know I need to step up and be a better wife. Um, you know, just sometimes the way I talk to him or treat him, I don't know sometimes why I act the way I do. Um, I get scared and I try to push people away because I don't want to be hurt. And I feel like sometimes I'm scared and so I'm mean to him because um, I'm trying to protect myself. Um, yeah, it's just, it's been a roller coaster. There's times that we're on a high and I'm like, this is great. And then there's times what we hit the low and I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. So Erlon, you spoke with Satina and Stephen back in January. Stephen had only been out for a few months. He was still living in a transitional house. He was part of a program called Project Rebound that gives people coming out of prison a place to live, and it supports them while they're getting a degree from one of California's state schools. So the transitional house, his school, it was going great. Then the pandemic hit. Because of that, Stephen moved from the transitional house into Satina's home. And so they're locked in together now. All right, so everybody got their headphones in? Cool. Yes. We wanted to check in with them and see how they were making it during this pandemic. So how many people are in your house now? How many people are living there? There's seven of us. So it's me and Steven, and then my oldest daughter, Soraya, with her boyfriend. Um, and then they're expecting a baby. Um, my son, Joshua, who just came home from UC Berkeley, and then our daughters, Genesee and Jaden. So it's, it's the Brady Bunch. Y'all yes, in there chilling. <laughs> Yeah. I wouldn't describe it as chilling, but all right. <laughs> hey, hey, I bet it's the best lockdown you've been on. <laughs> this is the biggest cell I've ever been in, that's for sure. <laughs> so I'm happy to be here with my family, but it's it's definitely a handful trying to continue my studies. Uh, there's no more alone time or no more quiet time. My quiet time is inter interrupted by what my girls need for school and so they can be successful. And it's it's definitely a, a challenge in that direction. That's for sure. So you you going through what Satina been going through? Oh yeah, I've already I've yeah. The longer that I'm out, the, the more that I realize like how much not only my wife has done, but like any lady who's in this situation, whether it's a sister, a mom, she's paid all the bills, she's kept a roof over their over their head, she's kept them in school, and not just kept them in school, but like decently in school. Like they're good, they're good kids. Like being here now full time. I start to really see, like, she's like the linchpin in everybody's life, and you remove the linchpin, everybody falls apart. 
this is the first time you've living together, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, this is the first time I've lived with anybody other than my family. Yeah. It's, that's huge. Yeah. Let me ask you this, Stephen. Yes. Uh, you got home and you seen uh, the shrine that was dedicated to you. <laughs> <laughs> the memorial? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the, mem- the memorial of your prison life. Right, right, you know right, right, right. Is that shrine still there? No, I'm trying to bust it up. I'm like, look, we need new pictures. This, that's over with. So what's the new shrine going to be like? Hopefully it's all family stuff. <laughs> yeah. Family together, right? Right? I was, it was funny because we were just talking about, I'm like, I need to replace a lot of these pictures from blues to you being home. But, um, Stephen, I can totally understand what you're saying about not wanting to be defined by that experience. But a big part of your relationship occurred, obviously, while you were in prison. So there must be memories you want to hold on to. And it's tough that they happen to swirl around being in prison. But they're still such an important part of your relationship. It seems like it'd be hard to try to negate all of those memories. Yeah, well, I'm not trying to negate uh, anything. I just don't think we should be defined by that. Like even our relationship, mm-hmm. I think that it's fine. I mean, it started, it started in junior high and yes, there's a big chunk of it in prison, but as the days go by, that big chunk is no longer the big chunk. There's now this other chunk. Right. And so as it keeps going on, I'm like, Hey, well, well we know what happened here. We lived it. Yeah. Let's look t- together towards the future and let's worry about that part. Okay. So I have two questions left. One is, Stephen, do you feel she's still crazy for staying down for you? Yes. That'll, that answer never changes, just so you're, so you're aware. Do you understand you would still be in prison if it wasn't for that woman? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, he had his head down, yeah. <laughs> I love the pause. It's great. Thanks to me, Darlene, Annette, Raven, Raylene, Teresa, Sutina, and Stephen, and their crumb snatchers. Ear Hustle is produced on the inside by Nigel Poor, Rasan New York Thomas, John Yaya Johnson, and Pat Masidi Miller. And on the outside by Mr. Erlon Woods and Mr. Bruce Wallace. This episode was scored with music by Antoine Williams and Rashid Zinneman. Curtis Fox edits the show. Aaron Wade is the digital producer. Julie Shapiro is the executive producer for Radiotopia. Ear Hustle would like to thank acting warden Ron Broomfield. And as you know, every episode of Ear Hustle has to be approved by this awesome guy here. This is Lieutenant Sam Robinson, the public information officer at San Quentin State Prison. I've just finished uh, listening to the latest episode of Ear Hustle. And uh, since we're all separated from each other, I'm actually calling from home where I just finished my uh, evening routine workout. Uh, three inches down and uh, the heart is strong and healthy. I feel like I'm built to last. And I hope that you too feel like you're built to last, that you and yours are 
doing well during this quarantine. Um, I'm not suffering losses during this time. And for those of you who have suffered a loss, my condolences are with you. And with that, I do approve this episode. I'm Nigel Poor. And I'm Erline Woods. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. Big, big love. The entire Ear Hustle team from everyone at Snap, one love. Make sure you go and subscribe. Ours are some of the best storytelling in the land that you need to hear. Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. They've got a brand new season waiting for you. They just dropped. Go to their website and check it out, earhustlesq.com. Click subscribe and thank me later. We're going to have links to all that is Ear Hustle on our website, snapjudgment.org. though this is not the news no way is this the news in fact you could trip over a shrine your loved one had constructed in hopes that someday you would be released from incarceration and then blame all the shattered glass and broken candles on the cat you do not have and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is but this is PRX